0: Witness Docs from Stitcher.
3: Pull up to those gates, and then we'll just walk around.
4: In the last episode, Andrew Chatwin showed us some of the footage he'd gathered in Shore Creek. He was part of an effort to document the ways FLDS were discriminating against ex-believers who had returned to the community. Andrew also took us to a large property on the edge of town. Oh, cute little bunnies. It's covered with old trees, and there's a dirt path that leads around a pond. And there are lots of animal pens.
3: This used to be the old zoo. We had bears and camels and zebras and kangaroos.
4: Oh, wow, there are some emus. Emus? Okay. I I
3: raised these emus as a baby. They're going to be curious, so they might peck at your stuff.
4: That's all right. Hi, buddy.
3: Today, part
2: of this property is privately owned, and the other part is a nature center a space for the community. It's a really beautiful property. But back in October 2015, it was the scene of a confrontation.
1: Would you turn your recorder back on? We need all the evidence we can get.
2: The UEP had leased this land to an ex-believer. But the FLDS didn't see that lease as valid. To them, the land and everything on it was still the property of the church.
3: People were over here digging up all the raspberry plants and the Springfirst system and taking whatever they wanted. And so that's why we were here, was to try to stop those people from vandalizing the property.
4: Andrew Chatwin and the ex-believer who was leasing the property went to put locks on the gates. And they found a member of the FLDS squatting in one of the buildings. So they called the marshals. But the marshals were still loyal to the FLDS church. So when they arrived, they ordered Andrew and his friend to leave the property. Andrew was ready to document the moment, but he had to hand off his camera when it became clear that he and his friend were both being arrested. This is footage from the arrest.
3: The marshals are ordering us off the property. They're going to arrest Patrick and I. So where do you guys intend to take me? purgatory? I won't say purgatory I don't know how oh, yeah.
4: Andrew knew the local marshals would never hold FLDS accountable for discriminating against ex-believers.
3: We, the people, had to reach out for help to bigger law enforcement.
4: And so who did you reach out to? Which police department? Or uh,
3: We actually went right to the, the attorney general of Utah and the attorney general of Arizona. It wasn't just our case. There was other issues that came to light.
4: What were some of the issues besides yours?
3: Um, arresting a father at his own house keeping him from seeing his own children or the clinic that refused to see somebody that wasn't an FLDS. The restaurants, the gas stations, all the businesses were controlled by the church.
4: While both the Utah and Arizona AGs were looking at these complaints, Short Creek was getting attention at the federal level, too. In 2012, the Department of Justice filed suit against the two towns for religious discrimination. The DOJ then spent the next four years building a case against the local governments in this small community for violating the nation's most important document, the U.S. Constitution.
3: The issues were so big that it was on a federal level, not just on a state level.
2: On January 20th, 2016, Jeff Matura walked through the glass doors into the glass building that is the Sandra Day O'Connor Federal Courthouse in downtown Phoenix. He passed through the metal detector, walked through the echoey entryway, and headed upstairs.
5: There's a long hallway that you go down, and then you finally get to the courtroom, and you turn in, and there's, you know, two sets of double doors you go through. It's a... one of those days in your career that I don't think you ever forget. You know, it's like like your best birthday party ever as a kid. You can never quite repeat it, and you never quite forget it either. Now, maybe birthday party is the wrong analogy, (laughs) because that uh, is maybe a happy occasion.
4: Yeah, this definitely wasn't a happy occasion. Jeff Matura was in the courthouse to defend Colorado City, a town accused of police violence and housing discrimination. This is why the DOJ was suing Colorado City and Hilldale, and their utility departments. It was the first time the federal government had ever sued a town for being run by a church.
2: I was there for part of the trial, reporting for an NPR station. And as everyone gathered in the courtroom, it felt tense. Here's how Jeff
5: Matura remembers it. As you walk in on the left side is all of us representing the towns. And our little team of lawyers and, you know, paralegals and our boxes of binders and, you know, et cetera. And the courtroom is packed with observers, media, um, people who are for you, people who are against you. You know, you had church members and former church members. You had people sitting in the courtroom who haven't spoken to each other in who knows how long. Even Sometimes taking, family members. Well, I was just going to say, you literally had family members who either hadn't seen each other in years, hadn't spoken together, and really had no desire to. And you look to the right, and there had to be half a dozen or more lawyers from the Department of Justice and their entire staff. And you, know, you realize this is the federal government, um, you know, bringing this lawsuit. And that really kind of hits you. This is not this is not small potatoes. This is this is intense stuff.
2: Jeff was heading into battle.
5: The moment before the judge walks in, it's like getting on the scariest roller coaster you can imagine. And it's that moment when you sit down and strap yourself in that you think, good Lord, can I please get out? Someone stop the ride.
4: But there was no stopping this ride. Today, we'll tell you about the six-week trial in Phoenix, a trial where siblings and cousins and friends and neighbors testified against each other. And the federal government fought to define the limits of religious freedom.
2: Do you feel like your church was discriminated against through that trial?
1: Yes, I do. There was people that were leaving dead animals on my porch and in the back of my pickup, and, and I knew what it was. They were just in trying to intimidate me.
4: I'm Sarah Ventry. I'm Ash Sanders, and this is Unfinished Short Creek. Episode 8, Can I Get a Witness?
2: The Department of Justice was suing the towns of Colorado City and Hilldale for discriminating against ex-believers. That meant they had to prove that the towns were run by the church. In other words, there was no separation of church and state in Short Creek.
6: My name is Jessica Clark, and I was a trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division. And I was on the team of lawyers that um, investigated and
2: litigated the case against the town of Colorado City in the city of Hildale. Jessica had just started at the DOJ when the department started investigating the towns. I,
6: I was super excited because... It's it's the dream when you go to work for DOJ to work on a civil rights case, one, that's never been brought before, and two, something that has the ability to impact so many people. And we were just very excited um, to put this case on. You know, 99% of the cases at DOJ settle and never make it to trial. Jessica spent a lot of
2: time in Short Creek prepping for the trial.
6: I loved it out there. I miss it. It's such a beautiful place. The people are so welcoming and loving, like the witnesses that that we interacted with. You know, obviously the people who are still in the church, you know, you sort of get stares, you know, because you were
2: obviously not somebody in the community. A couple times she was even followed by the church's security team, which is actually referred to as the God Squad. Yes, the God Squad. They would certainly tell you, and they have
6: completely blacked out windows so you can't see, you know, who the person is. You know, I certainly uh, was followed around a time or two while I was driving through there,
2: Um, which can be intimidating. Jessica saw firsthand how things worked in Short Creek, and she and the rest of her team knew they needed witnesses who could testify about just how deep this intimidation went. So their first witness had to be a really good one. The first witness we had
6: testify was Isaac Weiler.
1: I was out of hay, so I went up to the feed store where I'd had an account for years.
4: We've heard from Isaac before. He was one of the 21 men Warren Jeffs kicked out during a Saturday meeting in 2004. But in the DOJ case, he testified about what happened after he left the meeting house that day. He had just been kicked out of the church but he still needed to get hay for the horses he raised, so he went to the feed store.
1: Uh, I went in and and told him how many scoops of cubes I wanted and had my truck sitting right there, and nothing happened and nothing happened, and all of a sudden somebody hollered out uh, something like, it'll be a cold day in hell before we ever load you with hay again.
2: In an instant, Isaac had gone from being a prominent member of the community to being a pariah.
1: I started feeling the uh the impact of being kicked out uh, not only with communication with my friends and family and and things like that, but uh financially as well or or economically I should say you know they just cut my account right off just like that and this is somebody who I'd never had a problem with ever. you know I'd always paid my bills like I said, I had an open and running account with them for years. And that got shut down immediately. Suddenly, Isaac couldn't
2: do what he needed to do to put food on his table. And the longer he stayed in town,
1: the worse things got. We started having things like having our tires get slashed on our vehicles and our horse trailers. And there was a time there where the worst month I ever had is we had 28 flat tires in one month. We are starting to suffer a lot of vandalism, things that I had never suffered before the whole time I had been here. There was people that were leaving dead animals on my porch and in the back of my pickup and in my horse pens, stuff like that. And I knew what it was. They were just trying to intimidate me. This is from a community that I grew up working hand, you know, shoulder to shoulder with people. And we didn't do things like that to each other. It just didn't happen.
4: After Isaac testified, more than 20 other witnesses took the stand. These witnesses told stories about religious leaders kicking city officials out of the church and then out of the government. They explained how the utility department would refuse water hookups to ex-believers, and they described how the police acted as church security, even protecting Warren Jeffs from the FBI. The county water specialist testified. So did one of Lyle Jeffs' wives. The DOJ even called the mailroom attendant at the prison where Warren Jeffs was held. They wanted the jury to have no doubt. The cities had acted as arms of the FLDS church and systematically discriminated against non-believers. The case centered on two violations in particular.
5: One was what we call fair housing violations.
2: This is Jeff Matura again.
5: claim was that the two towns were providing housing needs differently based upon religion. And those housing needs would entail such items as uh, water, sewer, being allowed to build a home, get a permit, if you will, to build a home. So the allegation was that those community functions were applied differently based upon religion.
6: And then the second issue was that the police department really acted like a security arm for the FLDS church. They, you know, ran license plates and used police databases um, at the request of the church, which is illegal. Um, They provided security at church functions in a way that was not legal. They hid and did not investigate crimes that FLDS members, particularly Warren Jeffs and Lyle Jeffs, uh,
2: were engaged in. If the DOJ could prove that the towns and its departments had violated fair housing policies and engaged in discriminatory policing, then Hildale and Colorado City would be guilty of violating multiple constitutional rights and of violating something called the Establishment Clause.
6: Under the Establishment Clause, basically there needs to be a separation between church and state. So a city can't operate as a church. It can't be controlled by a church. Under our laws, there has to be a separation between those two things. And that wasn't happening in these cities. They were operating strictly for the benefit of this church. They were being run by Warren Jeffs, who for most of this time was running things from jail.
2: You can't talk about democracy in America without talking about the separation of church and state. But figuring out where the line is that separates the two has always been difficult. And now in court, both sets of lawyers were playing tug of war to move that line just a little further.
5: We took the position that this case was ultimately rooted in the federal government's dislike of the FLDS religion. That the government can't tell people what to believe Because today, they don't like the FLDS religion. Tomorrow, it might be your religion or my religion. Depends who's in charge of the government.
4: For Matura, the whole case came down to one question.
5: Who is discriminating against whom?
4: Short Creek had been struggling with this question since it was founded. And the court's answer to the question would change the future of Short Creek. If the DOJ lost, the church would continue to control the community. But if the DOJ won, Short Creek would no longer be run by the church. People in power would have to abide by the law or suffer the consequences.
2: So who was discriminating against whom? The trial gets personal after the break.
4: Hi, everyone. Before we get to the second half of today's episode, we want to tell you about some extra episodes we're working on. As you probably know by now, the story of Short Creek is really complicated,
2: and we just couldn't fit everything into 10 episodes. So we're releasing four bonus episodes of unfinished Short Creek in Stitcher Premium.
4: For example, did you know that the FLDS are not the only fundamentalist Mormon group in the area? In one bonus episode, we'll talk about some of those other groups, and about the multiple people claiming today that they are the true prophet of God. There will also be an
2: episode where I go behind the scenes and talk about what it was like to live in the former prophet's house in Short Creek for three months. I'll share some of the really interesting things I learned and take you to some parts of town with some tape that didn't make it into the show. And of course, we're doing a bonus episode where we respond to your comments and questions. Email
4: us a voice memo or drop us a note at unfinished at stitcher.com. If you want to check out the bonus episodes, just sign up at stitcherpremium.com with the code WITNESS for a free month of premium listening. That's stitcherpremium.com,
2: promo code WITNESS.
4: As the trial continued, the DOJ brought witness after witness to the stand, but there was one in particular who made it clear what the stakes of the case really were. Helaman Barlow.
6: Yeah, so Helaman Barlow was the former chief of police. And we had taken his deposition when he was still the chief of police. And he was very much towing the FLDS line and, and saying, you know, we don't discriminate. And there's no problem with the police department. And we're not, you know, acting as security for the FLDS church. And then maybe a year or less before the trial happened, he was kicked out of the church and then he was no longer the chief of police. He was fired after that. And um, he came to us and told us, you know, admitted to what was really going on. And he testified to that at trial.
2: There were no recorders allowed in the courtroom, so there's no audio of the trial, but we're going to read part of his transcript the part where the lawyer asks Helaman about his previous testimony defending the church. Is it fair to say, Mr. Barlow, that there have been times in the past under oath when you have given very different testimony than what you're giving right now? Helaman says, yes, I have. I've admitted to perjury and other things that I'm not real proud of. So Helaman flipped and admitted to lying under oath, which is a felony. But Helaman told the jury he had taken that risk and lied under oath because, quote, the church had total control over my family, my kids. He goes on to say, I had a very difficult choice to make. I could tell the truth, risk losing my family, losing my job from the city and being exiled, or I could lie under oath, but my family would not be taken from me. Helaman testified as a firsthand witness that people in power, including himself, discriminated against ex-believers at the instruction of the church. He admitted to
6: what the police department was really doing and and their involvement with the FLDS church, including running license plates. And he just admitted to all the things that he wouldn't um, cop to when we took his deposition and he was still in the church. So that was, um, you know, very powerful Testimony to give um, from somebody who who was you know right in the middle of it and really a part of it and you know the attorneys for the city tried to paint him as a liar saying he's you know just saying these things now and he used a lot of his prior statements against him but you know he he admitted um, that he had lied previously and, and that what he's saying
2: now is the truth and the and the jury believed him. Helaman's testimony was a bombshell. It helped the DOJ prove how rampant discrimination was in Short Creek. But it also showed that the church had so much control that it could push a high-level official to lie under oath. But the people who were in court to tell the town side of the story, people who were still loyal to the church, said the DOJ was just seeing what it wanted to see. Do you feel like you or your church was discriminated against Through that trial? Yes, I do. You remember Joseph Allred, the mayor of Colorado City.
7: I do. Because I am looked down upon and vilified and looked at as a bad person. If I go to my pastor, well within my rights, and I ask my pastor, should I run for office or should I not? Do I have that right? If I'm FLDS, no. No because I'm bringing religion into my public duties. And that, that's discrimination.
2: To Joseph and other FLDS, the trial was unjustified, a show put on by the government, full of exaggerated examples.
7: I'll give you an example. There was an officer pulled over somebody for speeding, and it was the bishop's son, okay? Well, the officer let him go with the verbal warning. Well that got blown up in the court case as being favoritism but that officer may have pulled over a dozen people that week and given them all verbal warnings but there's just incidents that they'll they'll take and they'll spin it and they'll leave certain things out they'll put certain things in and just portray it the way that the way that they want and the department of justice did that Incident after incident after incident.
2: Joseph was involved in some of these incidents directly. Remember, he's one of the highest elected officials in the community. The DOJ was trying to prove that he was acting on behalf of the church while serving in a public office, including before he was mayor, when he served as the utility department director. They asked him questions about the most intimate details of his life, his career, his faith, and his family, all the things that matter to him most. And it got really personal. I'm going to read a section of his testimony too. The DOJ lawyer asks, is it also fair to say that as mayor, that you're concerned about your citizens? Is that right? And he responds, of course. And that would extend to being concerned about whether government money is carefully spent. Is that right? And then Joseph says, At the instruction of counsel, I'm asserting my rights under the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution and respectfully decline to answer. The lawyer asks, You understand, sir, I'm not asking you about any particular spending. I'm just asking, in general, you would be concerned about how your citizens' money is being spent. And Joseph says, I think I answered the question. The prosecution was building up this series of questions in order to ask Joseph about a letter he wrote to Warren Jeffs. In that letter, he admitted to taking money from the utility department and distributing it to certain FLDS families. As soon as the lawyer brought up government spending, Joseph pleaded the fifth. And then he pleaded the fifth more than 50 times in 45 minutes. The lawyer asks, is this a copy of a letter that you wrote to Warren Jeffs when you were city clerk, sir? Isn't it true, sir, that you got this letter to Warren Jeffs through a secret FLDS courier network? Isn't it true, sir, that as late as 2012, you were taking cash out of Twin City Waterworks for either your personal benefit or the benefit of the church? Isn't it true, sir, that you participated in a conspiracy hatched in secret backroom meetings to use the city's water policy to discriminate against non-FLDS members. And after each question, Mayor Joseph Allred said, at the instruction of counsel, I'm asserting my rights under the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution and respectfully decline to answer. Three and a half years after this trial, I wanted to ask Joseph why he did that. Do you think if people hear that you pleaded the fifth so many times that 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 makes them think, well, like, if he's not saying it, there must be a reason why he's not answering this question? Right.
7: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I I mean, I came out of that with thinking, you know, there are probably thousands of people that think that I am probably one of the worst people in the world because because of my testimony or like there are uh, however you look at it but and yet i look at it and i just have to remind myself okay so what can i do about it if they they're going to have a problem they're going to have a problem and this too shall pass
2: but for many ex-believers who were discriminated against, who were mistreated or abused, the pain doesn't always pass. There's one more thing the DOJ asked Joseph on the stand that we need to talk about here. He's asked, isn't it true, sir, that you were married to Miss Smith in Needles, California, in a ceremony performed by Warren Jeffs on September twentieth, two 2004, when Miss Smith was 17 years old? The lawyer is asking Joseph Allred about his alleged marriages to minors. We've changed their names for privacy. The lawyer goes on. Isn't it true, sir, that less than two years after you married Miss Smith, you took as your fifth wife a young girl by the name of Ann Jones, who was born April 1989? If we do the math, sir, isn't it true that at the time of the marriage, she was 15 years old? And isn't it true, sir that Miss Jones gave birth to your child when she was 17 years old? Isn't it true, Mayor Allred, that the Colorado City Marshal's Office was aware of your marriage to Ms. Jones and was aware that you engaged in conduct that could have been considered statutory rape? And after each question, Joseph Allred responded, At the instruction of counsel, I'm asserting my rights under the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution and respectfully decline to answer. When you were in court, um, one of the questions that you were asked about was was about two of your marriages that were allegedly to underage girls. I'm wondering if there's anything you just want to say in response to that. No. Okay. Let's be clear. Joseph Allred wasn't on trial the towns of Colorado City and Hildale were. But by asking Joseph these questions, the DOJ was showing the jury that even the mayor would break the law in the name of religion and that the police and city government didn't try to stop it. But Joseph refused to answer any of the questions. Here's Jeff Matura.
5: One of those constitutional rights that exists for you, for me, for everyone in the country, including Mayor Allred, is his Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate himself and not answer questions by the government. Anyone in the United States, United States citizen, has that right. The government knew he was going to invoke his Fifth Amendment rights before he did it. And so some of it was a show, you know, trials are theater. They didn't have to ask him 50 questions. They could have accomplished the same point in five, Um, but some of it was a show um, for effect for the jury and for the media sitting in the back of the courtroom.
2: Jeff saw this, the theater, the questioning, as the United States putting a whole religion on trial. And this is the argument he made in court.
5: This case was ultimately rooted in the federal government's dislike of the FLDS religion. The government doesn't really care about building permits in Colorado City. The government doesn't really need to spend the multiple millions of dollars investigating whether someone got a garbage permit or a utility connection, that that was not why they brought this case. They brought this case because of Warren Jeffs and the FLDS Church, and he's a bad guy who deserves to be sitting right where he's sitting in a prison cell. Um... He did a lot of terrible, awful, illegal things to a lot of people. And, um, and the government believes that the other members of the church were engaged in the same type of activity. They didn't like their beliefs. They, don't like, they didn't like the fact that they view Warren Jeffs as their prophet. My argument was you can't say as society, and certainly the government can't say, that that person doesn't have the right to believe that. Because now you're making a judgment call on their beliefs. And that's incredibly dangerous because today they don't like the FLDS religion. Tomorrow it might be your religion or my religion. Depends who's in charge of the government.
2: After all the disturbing testimony I heard from Joseph and others, I was surprised to find some of the defense's arguments pretty compelling. So I wanted to ask Jessica Clark about it. So the the thing that Jeff Matura said in his closing arguments that stuck with me, like, for always, was who is discriminating against whom? You know, we've spent a lot of time in the community talking with people. And one of the things that comes up all the time is that, you know— The state and federal governments have a history of coming against this town. They have tried to dismantle this community before. They've raided our community. They've arrested our fathers and our husbands and our grandfathers and put them in jail. We've been separated from our parents. I think this is seen often as just a continuation of that story of the government coming against the community. And I'm wondering what you think about that.
6: I think that that argument was a distraction for the jury. You know, don't look here. Don't look at this discrimination that is blatant and that you're seeing and that's being repeated through witness after witness. Don't look at that. You know, look over at that table. Look at those folks who came from D.C. And, you know, there's lots of references to us coming down from D.C. to, 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 to bring um, this case. Um, and, and so I think it was just really a, a red herring. Um, we had tons of evidence of discrimination. And what was happening is that city officials were discriminating against people who are not members of the church. And they were doing that primarily at the direction of Warren Jeffs.
2: I think at one point in the trial, Jeff Matura said, Warren Jeffs isn't my client. Mm -hmm. I'm not defending Warren Jeffs. I'm trying to defend the right of people to practice a religion that many people in this country find distasteful. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it comes down to. How do you respond to that?
6: Yeah, so the case wasn't about polygamy, you know, that I feel like that's, you know, the elephant in the room, like the the case was not about polygamy. What it was about is the city officials basically being one with the church and and using city power to enforce religious law. That that was the problem.
2: After six weeks of grueling testimony and days of deliberation, the jury sided with the Department of Justice. The towns were found guilty of systematically discriminating against non-church members, of engaging in discriminatory policing, and of violating the Establishment Clause. The court was saying, you can practice your religion, but your church can't run the government And the government can't discriminate. It can't violate people's constitutional rights, even in the name of religion.
8: It was late fall 2016. driving into town that day. I had a moving truck behind me, my car attached to the moving truck, my kids in the cab of the truck with me, and I'm realizing
4: I couldn't turn around. I was committed
8: to this decision.
4: About six months after the DOJ verdict, Elisa Wall left her home in Salt Lake City and drove back to Shore Creek. It had been 15 years since her forced marriage and over a decade since she'd left.
8: I was on a stretch that's known as Canaan Corner. That's right when you're coming into the area where you start to see the mountains rise up above the Short Creek area. And for a lot of us, that was kind of a, a pivotal point, because most people weren't allowed to leave further than that outside of town without a and man. There's a little abandoned store on the side of the road, and I had stopped inside that parking lot. I had this full-on panic attack. I had to stop on the side of the road. My kids were panicked. What's going on, Mom? I had to let them get out of the cab of the truck and, and have this moment. And for me, that moment of it all coming up, I think, was accumulation of a lot.
7: What I'm about to reveal to you is so important
3: that if you reject it, you will be damned.
8: It wasn't just what had happened inside of the FLDS. It was the years after.
5: I just sat there. With my head hanging. The woman who helped convict polygamist leader Warren Jeffs is speaking out. She was forced by Jeffs at the age of 14.
8: Up to that moment, I made it about the place. Short Creek was the pain. Short Creek was the reason I had dealt with so many years of PTSD or night terrors or whatever these things were. And I realized that I had an opportunity to decide if I was bigger than a place. I was walking back into the fire. But I was doing it as the woman I was today, not as the victim I was then.
4: Elisa wasn't the only one who was moving home. For years, ex-believers had been making their way back to Shore Creek, determined to reclaim the community they'd been raised in. And after the DOJ verdict, many felt a sense of possibility.
2: Next time on Unfinished, ex-believers in Short Creek get organized. Every level of democracy had to be built from the ground up. Nobody's ever really asked the people what they've ever wanted out here. What do we want? They're like, it's a grassroots coalition. I'm like, well, what is that? So I went and looked it up to find out what a grassroots coalition was. You guys are the ones that have to step up and say, I will run. Because it's going to be a difficult,
4: difficult journey.
2: Unfinished Short Creek is a co-production of Critical Frequency and Witness Docs. Our team includes Amy Westervelt,
7: John Delore,
2: Abigail Keel, Ash Sanders,
5: Peter Clowney,
2: and me, Sarah Ventry. Chris Bannon is Stitcher's chief content officer.
4: Our fact checker on this episode is Amy Westervelt. Our production assistant in Short Creek is Araya Hammond. Our original score was composed
2: by Allison Layton Brown. Thanks to NPR member station KJZZ. This episode includes tape from interviews I did while working there in 2016 and 2017.
4: And of course, we are so grateful to all the people of Shore Creek who shared their stories with us. And don't forget to rate, review, and
2: subscribe wherever you listen.
1: If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay.